Welcome to number seven of our long COVID special podcasts by The Tea Room. Look, it's been almost a year since Australia opened its first long COVID clinic and still there's no funding for the management of this condition on lives, on workplaces and on healthcare. Now, politically, there's the start of some action. The Australian Parliament is holding an inquiry into long COVID right now, right as I'm talking to you. So I thought I'd invite Dr. Mike Freelander, MP, the chair of the health committee, which is running the inquiry. He's going to be joining us in the tea room in a few minutes. But I also have another guest that will provide some context for the political discussion. It's Martin Henscher, Professor at the Menzies Institute of Medical Research at the University of Tasmania. Now, you may recall in our very first episode of this long COVID special series, we spoke with Professor Henscher about his statistical modelling for long COVID. Well, the latest report has just been released. It's hot off the press. Professor Henscher, thanks for joining us again. What does long COVID in Australia look like right now? What are we dealing with? Sure. So what we're trying to do is estimate the kind of current number, strictly speaking, the number of people who will have long COVID symptoms as of the first week of December, but based upon cases that had actually happened up until the beginning of September this year. So we're not projecting into the future. We're just simply trying to get a handle on how many people already might have long COVID. And in our model, we've tried to look at, obviously, we included a number of factors, including some different estimates of how likely somebody is to develop long COVID following a COVID infection. But also, quite importantly, how likely are they to recover from long COVID and over what kind of trajectory? Before we get to the actual figures, what are the implications for healthcare, for primary caregivers, So from my perspective, I think the implications are different depending on the severity of the illness and symptoms that people are experiencing. And I think that's actually really important to understand. So from the international research and surveillance literature, there's a fairly consistent picture emerging, which is that when you ask people in big population surveys you know, are you experiencing any of the following long COVID symptoms? And there's this great long list of sort of 29 plus symptoms. Obviously, you get quite a lot of people who say, yes, I have one or more of of these symptoms. But what they've tended also to ask is, are these symptoms impacting your activities of daily living significantly? That would feed into a person's potential to care for themselves, care for their families, to work, to earn income, all of those sorts of things. Exactly. And pretty consistently, sort of 20 to 25% of everybody reporting long COVID suggests a report that they are suffering significant and limiting symptoms. Is that global stats or Australian stats? That's from various different countries, but also from the one really good survey that we have in Australia, which the Australian National University recently published, and they came up with, I think, 21.5% from memory of their respondents said that they had significant limitations. So that, in a very crude way, I think that divides up people with long COVID really into three groups. There's a group of people who, yes, they have some long-lasting symptoms, but that are really not really having much impact on their day-to-day lives 
at all. Then you've got kind of the bigger group in the middle of people who have symptoms that are having some impact on their lives, but are probably not debilitating them, if you like. Then this 20% or so of people who've really got significant impacts who you know, in some ways are heading towards probably being somewhat disabled by this, particularly impacting on work and, and that kind of thing. The question then is what actually a GP's got in the arsenal to actually help people with those more significant symptoms and or can they actually refer them to specialist long COVID clinics, etc. And I think the other question, there's a group of people who to date don't really appear to be recovering. And that is the group, obviously, who long-term are going to be really disabled, really severely impacted by this, who are going to need long-term care and support, etc. Yes. But, you know, this is interesting because I think when we spoke last time, you said that generally if we're using UK data, it's about 10% roughly of people will have long COVID symptoms post, will have long COVID, so symptoms post three months. But then of that, of that 10%, half will resolve in the next year. And it might be so 5% of people who have COVID might have long COVID for more than a year. Do those stats still play out? So they've changed quite a bit. And this is one of the problems, as you know, all your listeners will know, is with COVID, the evidence is changing all the time. So we used more recent data. One of our models is based on newer UK data. One of the other models is based on a big global burden of disease study. I, I can come back to that one. But the UK data, which is nice because they used data from the kind of early stages of the Omicron wave. So it is actually more contemporary. They've got Omicron cases in there. And of course, they've also got kind of by that stage quite high vaccination rates. So kind of early this year with an Omicron infection, it was looking more like, let's say, four to five percent of those people would be showing long COVID symptoms at three months. The 12-month point, we've got a bit more data from international studies, which is still honestly fairly rubbery, but we've actually used kind of rather lower estimates, so really assumed slightly better rates of recovery over the kind of over the course of the year, so that we use this Institute, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation study, where they found that of people who had long COVID at three months, at 12 months, 15% of them were still showing symptoms. Hi. Those are the kind of models we use. We had a, we had a much higher estimate, which I'm pleased to say we've, we're fairly confident we can throw out now as too high, so I won't really talk about that one. But the two kind of lower-end models that we used lead us to be able to say, I think with reasonable confidence, that... At the beginning of December, there'll be, let's say, at least 160,000 people across Australia with current long COVID symptoms, and about 35,000 of them will have significant limitations on their activities of daily living due to their long COVID. So that's the minimum. Okay. But then in October, as I say, the ANU published the results of a survey 
that they did in August. So these data that I'm talking about are actually referring to August 2022. And they've been doing a kind of long-standing monthly survey of it, experiences, and they, for the first time, added in some long COVID questions to it in August. And they found that at that time, in August, 4.7% of adult Australians either had at that time or had previously had long COVID symptoms three months after a COVID infection. And that kind of came up to, at that stage, over 9% of people who had had a COVID infection. That's a little bit more like the original that is exactly. So that's very interesting. So that puts us in, into significantly higher territory. And that, when you kind of crunch that through now, we had the, the issue with that finding was that was actually people who had ever reported having long COVID rather than currently. So we did a bit of estimation based on some ratios from other countries who've asked similar kind of questions and really sort of suggested that, that in August, well over 500,000 people would have had some long COVID symptoms. The ANU researchers, as I said, they also did ask about these significant limitations, severe symptoms, and they came up with this 21.5%, very consistent with what we see from other countries. So we then tried to slightly reverse engineer our model, if you like, to kind of put that, drive the ANU data through it. And that suggests to us that, yeah, maybe about 500,000 people might have long COVID at the beginning of December, about 110,000 of whom would have significant impacts from their symptoms. I wouldn't absolutely call that a maximum estimate, but I think that would give us a very defensible upper end limit on what we might expect. So something you could potentially build a policy around at yeah. the moment, though, we have no policies for long COVID. Parliamentary inquiry, I think it closed its submissions earlier this week. You have submitted this report into the parliamentary inquiry. What are you hoping? We've made a number of recommendations to the committee, and I think we need to see action in five broad areas. The first one is actually about surveillance, and we desperately need quickly to get better population level data on long COVID in this country. And I think we need the, the work that the ANU has done is fantastic, but we actually need, I would say honestly, the Australian Bureau of Statistics to start doing the same kind of big surveys that they've been doing in the UK, the US and Canada. I think when we spoke earlier in the year, you said that you were lobbying the Australian Bureau of Statistics to be able to pick up this piece of research and start tracking it. Obviously, that hasn't really found much traction. Are you finding any coalition of the willing in the bureaucracies? So I'm aware of people who are doing good work, but I think there has also been, you know, maybe some reticence to do these surveys, and we're really losing time now. In fact, we're now one of the few of our kind of peer countries who is not doing these sorts of surveys. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll regret it. So that's data is critical. The next area, obviously, though, is, of course, about care and treatment. Certainly, I think we can all agree there isn't a kind of definitive treatment, certainly. But I'm more interested in getting the right 
service model. What is it appropriate for primary care to do? And how can we then resource primary care given all the other, you know, kind of crises swirling around in both primary and acute care? I've for some time suggested I think we need to try and mobilise more private sector resources, particularly allied health resources, and, and find a way to mobilise them with public funding. So we need a way to bring those services together, coordinate them for individuals, and then fund them properly through the public sector so that people can access them and get right. Indeed. Any final words? I try to avoid predictions for obvious reasons, but I think if things go well and as you know as is looking plausible that maybe slowly slowly we're kind of coming out of the acute covid phase and perhaps with a bit of luck each wave is not as bad as the the last one etc etc my biggest concern is that we end up left with a kind of a hardcore of quite severely ill people with long-term long COVID. As I say, we're seeing in the UK, for example, now there's a big a kind of grouped three or 400,000 people who've been reporting long COVID. It won't be those numbers. It's probably more like tens of thousands. But that they kind of really get left behind as the rest of us move on from COVID, if we haven't really got in place the proper services, they need both healthcare, but I think particularly disability, NDIS, welfare benefit support, you know, employment protection, etc. If we don't put this, the right protections in place for them now, I think we'll leave a group of patients as really the, the kind of long-term casualties of COVID who could be left behind without the care that they need for, for years to come. And I, I'd really like us to avoid that happening. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of the parliamentary inquiry. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Henscher. It's a pleasure. That was Professor Martin Henscher from the Menzies Institute of Medical Research at the University of Tasmania. Even with the best health economists in Australia on the job, the range of cases is still pretty broad, between 160,000 odd up to half a million cases. Now, if that doesn't show how much we need a centralised, robust, government-driven surveillance of long COVID, I'm not sure what does. Maybe that will be an outcome of the Australian Parliamentary Inquiry into Long COVID that is being chaired by Dr Mike Freelander, paediatrician and Member of Parliament for MacArthur. Dr Freelander is Chair of the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Health, Aged Care and Sport. It's sitting week this week in Parliament, but Dr Freelander has wisely taken a quick tea break to fill us in about where the inquiry is currently at. Thank you so much for your time, Dr Freelander. What's the inquiry looking at specifically? Well, I think that this was an inquiry set up at the request of the Health Minister, Mark Butler, to look into long COVID and recurrent COVID, the causes, the effects, the way in which the health system is coping at present, and what we can do to plan for dealing with long COVID and COVID complications in the future. Quite a broad remit. What is the role of chair? Do, must you mean maintain neutrality on matters or is there scope to advance an agenda? Look, there is scope to advance political agendas if people want to, but I have worked very hard with 
the uh, Deputy Chair, Mr McIntosh, the member for Lindsay, to try and make sure this uh, inquiry is as bipartisan as possible and is looking at how we can find solutions to what is significant health problems. I, I guess I was thinking more in terms of a health agenda. Are you able to really dig in and say this is what I believe needs to happen or, or are you really facilitating as chair? Look, all of us have our own biases, that's quite true, but uh, I think everyone on the committee wants to make sure that we look at the best possible healthcare solutions for people with long COVID and for those dealing with people with long COVID. Now, the biggest problem that we've found is that there really isn't much data available about long COVID. Even definition of long COVID has been difficult to to get an accepted definition. That it is, um, yeah. So we, we need to really, I think, primarily collect information. We need to talk to people with long COVID and those that are treating people with long COVID. And we need to really work through what solutions uh, government can provide. And clearly, you know, this is going to be state governments, federal government, local government. But I'm in particular, one of my biases is to look at how we can help primary care, GPs and community nurses deal with this issue and, and provide support for people with long COVID because what we've learned so far is that uh, in terms of treatment, there there are not any obvious effective treatments available as far as we can see at this stage. doesn't mm. mean there won't be, but certainly the biggest uh, issue is the data collection. Second is how we can help primary care deal with people with long COVID and support them. And I guess the third issue is looking forward to what, what we should be doing, not just to collect data, but to look at solutions look at effects on other places like schools and workplaces and how we can help people with long COVID get back into the workforce and deal with what is a, a chronic illness. The data collection is definitely a major mm -hmm. issue for everyone who's been working in that space, as you mentioned. That's unlike peer countries like the US, UK, Canada, Australia isn't yet running a national survey that's surveying long COVID prevalence or, or severity. So yeah. is that a drive? Is that like a, a bit of an agenda? Because that's not something that individual research institutes really have the scope to do. It's got to come down to Australian Bureau of Statistics or Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. It's got to be a government push for that kind of surveillance. Well, there's several questions in one. First of all, it's not just down to government. We know that uh, there's lots of health data available from private industry, pharmaceutical industry. We know, you know, there's data from general practices, there's data from hospitals, there's data from, you know, social security. But to be fair, until we have real interoperability or data sharing across electronic health record, which we do not have, we can't really rely on data that is collected in so many different ways. Yes, it'll give us information, but it really needs to be a national approach to data collection if we're going to get any decent surveillance of this condition. So I agree with you. I think that it is up to institutes and institutes are doing it on their own funding usually, but yeah. the government needs to take a stand Otherwise, it's probably not going to happen because that's what was required in the UK, in the US. It was it was a federally driven approach. 
Well, look, in the US and the UK, they have, they're investing a, a large amount in getting proper data collection. You opened a can of worms talking about electronic uh, health records. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I actually think it's disgraceful that Australia in the 21st century has such a poor track record in electronic health records. In fact, what you said was true. We don't really have proper electronic health record system. I think my health record has been a pretty dismal failure, I've got to say, and we do need to invest in that. But you're talking very long-term solutions, and I'm hopeful that we will be able to offer some solutions initially that won't have to wait till whichever millennium we get proper electronic health records in. So, yeah, I want some shorter-term solutions, mm-hmm. but it still does require us to get some data. We have spoken to jurisdictions overseas about some of the data they're already collecting, and we hope to get some useful information for overseas. But what is clear is that the long COVID experience is varying from country to country. And, you know, we may still be, in that regard, the lucky country that the incidence seems to be a bit lower in Australia than in other places, but it's early days and we, we, we do have to get more data to try and prove that. Nevertheless, we've got to deal with what we've got and that's why we're getting submissions from so many people, individuals, institutes, hospitals, state governments, they've all been very cooperative and I hope we'll be able to offer people some some information, some solutions and in a way some reassurance. The issue of funding into research is something that is perhaps a medium-term problem. In the short-term, research institutions like Kirby Institute, for example, you know, they're funding their research, robbing Peter to pay Paul, which is what you do in a crisis. You take what you can and focus into the area of need. And certainly Kirby's not the only group doing that. As we sort of roll into now, this is something that it is ongoing. We know it's going to be with us. For research as well as not just into pathogenesis, but into treatment and everything around that. How do we get that organised when we've got the federal state divide with healthcare? Yes, look, it is pretty much any health issue you talk about, you do come up to this sort of state federal divide. But I do think there's some very encouraging signs. I mean, we have the national cabinet now and we, we have our health ministers all meeting and interacting with each other. I must say our state governments have been very, very cooperative with with our committee. We've had submissions from several state governments and New South Wales, my home state, uh, Brad Hazard, the health minister, has been incredibly cooperative and, and gracious in allowing us to go into hospitals and things and get information. And I think in a couple of weeks we're having a, a meeting at some of our Western Sydney hospitals that were severely impacted by COVID. So I think there are encouraging signs and I know, you know, there can be frustrations, but, you know, we are in a new world now and I think if any good's come out of COVID, it has been uh, us learning that we, we do need to cooperate at the state and federal level and even local government level as well. I believe health issues are very much multi-partisan issues and I'll say to you that it is a very big topic and we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of submissions and people are wanting us to give answers and to talk about funding and to talk about supporting people and that's what we want to do. But I think it's very important that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot by making statements that are not backed up by fact and by data. 
And I think it's very important that we take the time to speak to as many experts and as many patients as possible to get a report that, that works and is able to offer some solutions and a way into the future. And I want to try and avoid very much knee-jerk reactions and, and short-term statements without, without knowledge. Fair enough. Uh, so evidence-based is important. We are planning to outline before Christmas the major issues that we see. So I have a bit of an issues paper. And it's going to be a lot of hard work, this report, right up until we deliver our final report probably around February, March next year. So an initial report sometime before Christmas and then final report around about February. March next year because we want to make sure that our recommendations, which are going to have some budgetary impact, are in time for budget submissions and trying to make sure that we do need to get adequate funding. I know people are talking about funding already now, but we want to make sure we get the right answers and also that we make sure that we do have enough convincing evidence for the government to fund support. Mm. That all sounds a very measured, prudent approach and great to know that you've got such engaging committee members from all parts of government on that. Just yep. to duck back to the surveillance and monitoring just to pick up on this point again, because I was speaking with Martin Hescher, who's the Menzies Institute at University of Tasmania, and he's one of the health economists who's been doing the modelling around long COVID numbers in Australia. Mm-hmm. So he sort of posed that the ABS, Strain Bureau of Statistics, are beautifully placed to include some long COVID questions in the surveys that they currently already roll out. This might, this yep. might, we're talking about trying to find some, I guess, low-hanging fruit in mm-hmm. in the in the shorter term rather than, yes, we will have longer-term answers, but this could be a low-hanging fruit for the, the ABS to do something of that nature. I guess yeah. that's in their submission to the parliamentary inquiry, but I just thought I'd throw it out there as well to you. I, I am aware of that and we've heard, I don't want to preempt or or release confidential information, but You know, some of the pharmaceutical companies are recording the numbers of prescriptions filled for some of the antivirals for acute COVID and, you know, there is ways of tracking the immunisation numbers, et cetera. Mm. So there there, there is some data that we can get, but it is patchy, I agree, and a more comprehensive way of collecting information such as through the, the ABS is certainly something we wouldn't be opposed to, but all of this does require funding support. That's something that governments have to decide on and it would be nice to have some real-time information to be making policy about. My other round in the medical republic is digital health. So the whole notion of interoperability and data sharing is absolutely critical to everything that I'm coming across. So maybe we need a parliamentary inquiry into electronic health records in Australia that might actually work. Well, I don't want to preempt anything we're going to do in the future. And I am a technological troglodyte, I would have to say. But even I can see the validity of what you're saying. And, you know, I do think we've made a lot of mistakes in the past. And there's no question that the future and the gold in health is going to be in data. And, you know, every health expert says that. And the fact that we have progressed so little in such a long period of time 
uh, does suggest to me that we maybe need to rethink the whole issue. And I think one of the problems is that it's kind of like a slow onset disaster as opposed to long COVID. It's happening now. People are, uh, some people are quite disabled by the condition. And so they're getting on the phone, they're sending emails, they're sending texts to their local member. So it's getting in the conversation at Parliament because that's what your constituents are saying, whereas no yep. one really rings up their local member and says, look, as a consumer of health, I think we should have electronic health records that are truly interoperable and that will help with research as well. You know, it's not the same kind of energy behind a push for a parliamentary inquiry. But how do these other more conceptual ideas become important enough yep to have an inquiry or to have a deeper investigation at a parliamentary level? Well, I think I think that, you know, we, we do need to take notice of what the health experts are saying. I actually have, have had people contact my office, mostly my medical colleagues, about the sad state of our electronic health records in Australia. And I certainly think it's something that will have to be on the agenda at some stage. You know, there's lots of other health issues we could have inquiries about, let me tell you. There's, there's no shortage. But in terms of the effect globally on health, electronic records are something that we should really be focusing on. So I, I would not be opposed to an inquiry along those lines by any mm. means. It's the future of value-based care, preventative health. It's the next big thing in public health, prevention. It, it is. No, look, you don't have to stop. I, I think it's really interesting. And I, I've seen the dramatic changes in healthcare. I've been working in the healthcare system now for half a century, which doesn't seem that long, but I suppose it is a fair time. And I've seen what's happened and I've seen things, systems like Medicare. I grew up in the Medibank days that when Gough first introduced Medibank and I've seen what a dramatic difference that made and then Medicare. But it is now a real tipping point now, a real time where we do need to look at changing how we provide healthcare, I think. And some of that may mean looking at systems other than just Medicare. Capitation for doctors to provide preventative health care is very important, not just transactional health care. I've been promoting a child health policy called First Thousand Days that, that would really lend itself to electronic, proper electronic records that can do major changes in health care, huge savings over long periods of time provided we do it. So I'm very much in favour of looking at how we can make the system work better. And Wendy, what you were saying about electronic health records is going to be the major part of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike Freelander, for your time today. I really appreciate that. I hope the rest of your time sitting in Parliament goes well this week and next. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Wendy. All the best. That was Dr. Mike Freelander, paediatrician, member for MacArthur and chair of the Standing Committee on Health, Aged Care and Sport. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Tea Room. Now, this has been number seven in our long COVID special series podcasts that we've been running this year at the Tea Room. You can listen to all the previous podcasts by searching for the Tea Room in your favourite podcast player. We've got a wealth of information about long COVID, speaking to some of the key people in Australia and abroad. Thanks for tuning in.